Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I work with leaders and their organizations to identify the trends that will most likely disrupt their businesses and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create strategic advantage and also create a better future for all of their stakeholders. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. With me on the show today is Greg Moran for the first half of the show, and then we'll shift over to Nicholas Papanicolaou talking about his experience as a leader. So Greg Moran is a C-level executive with extensive global experience. He led corporate strategy for Ford and designed the plan that Alan Malale used to turn around the company. Greg held C-level IT positions in app dev, infrastructure, and core banking applications at Ford, Nationwide Insurance, Bank One, J.P. Morgan, respectively. He began his career in consulting with Arthur Anderson Accenture. He is passionate about leadership and culture and teaches part-time on the topic at Ohio University. So our goal for this show is to help leaders continue to update their mindset and their skill set to respond to the changes that all of us are seeing in the fourth industrial revolution. So if you think about how can you leverage the time that you spend listening to this show, my hope is that you'll hear something that you will either update your mindset, how you think about the work, and or your behavior, what you actually do at work. And if we are doing that on a regular basis every week, we are likely to remain current. So the goal for listeners of this show, navigating the fourth industrial revolution and responding to complexity that is accelerating, it is critical for leaders to identify new opportunities on the horizon and manage their risk so they can deliver the best outcomes for the leaders and their organizations. As we think of best, we'll talk about how each of us defines best based on where we are in life now. What are we optimizing for? So we're starting with Greg. Tell us a little bit about how your career has changed and the pivot you have made, and then we'll go into more details. Yeah, I think, I mean, when I reflect on it, I've had more than one pivot. I started my career in consulting, and after nine years in consulting, sort of knocking at the door of being a partner with a a respected global firm, I walked away from it, largely because it was incompatible with what I thought were important values elsewhere in my life around raising a family, and I'd been traveling all the time, so it was really no more simple or no more complex, really, than that in that uh, it was an easy choice to make because I couldn't be the dad I wanted to be and travel, you know, five days a week, uh, 52 weeks a year. Mm -hmm. So I made that first pivot. But what it did did for me is it really gave me the confidence to make pivots, right? Mm -hmm. You actually understand it's not a death experience. It's just starting a new chapter of your life. You find out you can adapt to a new environment. You can adapt to a new culture. And particularly moving from consulting to corporate, you know, they weren't going to find me 30 years later cobwebbed to my desk. It actually was exciting work and Mm -hmm. there were many challenges and you have to seek them out and and take them on. Mm -hmm. The uh, more recent pivot uh, that I made really was moving from being, uh, having a great career in the corporate world Mm -hmm. to acting as an executive at a a venture-backed startup. And... 
interestingly, that felt like a much bigger pivot. Uh, as a consultant, I'd been working with large enterprises. It was a world I felt I mm-hmm. understood and could mm-hmm. make a difference in. And and honestly, it turned out that way. And I don't say that arrogantly. I was very fortunate in that I worked with some amazing people who saw potential in me. I had good problems to work on. I had great companies to work at. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pivot to a startup felt more dramatic because it was not a world I understood. It was not a world I'd worked in. And I had to relearn a bunch of skills that I had honed over those years in the corporate world. Mm -hmm. So you made that choice a few years ago. What was behind the decision? What can you share about why does one make that kind of pivot at this point in your career? Yeah, it's a great question because at the time I wasn't really... I wasn't really sure what was happening to me. Mm-hmm. I had uh, finished up an eight-year stint at Nationwide, had moved mm-hmm. on from the company. I did what you always do when you leave a company, which is fire up the headhunter network and mm-hmm. start talking to headhunters about what was out there, uh, targeting specific companies, targeting specific mm-hmm. industries, and ended up uh, targeting two specific companies uh, for which mm-hmm. I had very uh, you know very credible resume to, to go be their enterprise CIO and. And that process proceeded well. Like I got into these interview situations Mm -hmm. and I knew all the answers. And I struck up a great rapport with the CEOs at these companies and it really looked and ended up getting offers from both. And I found myself having an unexpected but strong allergic reaction to saying yes to these opportunities. And for me, I think it was at the time I couldn't have expressed well to you why I was having this reaction. In retrospect, as I've had time to contemplate it, uh, you know, what I really came to understand is the fact that I knew all the answers was partly why I didn't want to do the work. Mm -hmm. I really felt like I was not going into a situation where I would grow and learn as a professional. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's just fundamental. Like, if I'm not learning Mm -hmm. and growing, it's not fun. And if I'm not changing and helping a company Mm -hmm. transform itself, it's not fun for me. So this gets really to your core values, how you define yourself and being aware of them. Absolutely. I, uh, I remember when I left Ford, I interviewed with uh, an investment firm on the East Coast. And mm-hmm. uh, it was really interesting because I went through the interview and I realized that you know, my whole brand at that time had already you know, kind of emerged as a change agent. I'm mm-hmm. a transformational sort of a leader. I like to go in and say, if we're going to, you know, we're going to do something really different uh, to serve our customers better, mm-hmm. to, you know, run the company more efficiently, whatever it might be. And in this particular case, I realized that this company was looking for a steward, you know, like somebody that was going to come in and maintain the status quo. Mm, Okay. And uh, I know we've all been in that situation where you go through a day of interviews and you get to the end and you're sitting down with some HR person in a room somewhere and there's this game that gets played around, okay, well, we're going to, you know, get all the feedback and then we'll get back to you and talk about next steps and uh, so I'm in the conference room mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. the HR guy, and he walks in, and I said, let me save you some time. We're not going through any of that. <laughs> no next steps, dear. <laughs> right. I'm a terrible fit for what you're mm-hmm. looking for, and I suspect you already know that because you've had feedback from the people we talked to today. Mm-hmm. Let's just agree that that's the case, and I'll fly back to Detroit, mm-hmm. and we'll go on with our lives, and we'll just save ourselves the pretense of letters and mm-hmm. all of that. <laughs> I think it's important to your point to know what's important to you and mm-hmm. and, and, and to be authentic about that because mm-hmm. when you get yourself in a situation where you've compromised too much of that, mm-hmm. you're just forcing the next change, right? Because you're going to be miserable. And if you're miserable, you're not mm-hmm. going to be performing at your best. You're not going to be excited about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, all of the things that make you unique as a leader are, uh, you know, at best hamstrung and maybe entirely absent. You use the word what you optimize for through the developmental psychology lens. I I talk about that a little bit more like worldview, but it comes down to what do I value? Where do I fit? How do I accomplish what I care about in the world? Yes, it's interesting. You know, and I'll refer specifically to the second half of this podcast and the discussion with Nicholas Papanicolaou, and he's a great example of somebody who optimized for different things at different stages Mm -hmm. in his career, Mm -hmm. and as he saw economic success and Mm self-actualized on that, Mm -hmm. 
clearly began to spend more and more of his time on and energy mm-hmm. on things that you know, impacted the world in ways that were important to him. Mm-hmm. And I think all of us go through that evolution, uh, maybe for other reasons. So, you know, for me, it's always been about learning has, has mm-hmm. been a core value of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, the trick of it is, I think, giving yourself permission to be true to your values. And that's actually hard because the world and the pressures of your actual life mm-hmm. are arguing with you to not do that. <laughs> Right. Well, especially when there are families involved in economics. Absolutely. I mean, I took a 90% pay cut as my kids were starting college. I would imagine there were some conversations at home about that. <laughs> not not trying to get into personal stuff, but I can it's, imagine that might Let's just happened. say it's not economically intuitive, right? Mm-hmm. And I... And we had, as a family, Mm -hmm. run our finances in such a way that that was feasible. So it just came down to, should I do this, right? Is this thing that I'm Mm -hmm. about to do and Mm -hmm. I'm about to learn about Mm -hmm. important enough to me as a professional to, you know, to take, I would say, through good fortune and hard work, limited risk around Mm -hmm. it, right? So it wasn't a matter of, you know, we might be on the street in 60 days, But it was a matter of, I'm going to forego, there's a huge opportunity Mm -hmm. cost. I'm going to forego that opportunity return, if you will, Mm -hmm. in order to go over here and learn this new set of skills that to me resonates better with, you know, who I want to continue becoming Mm -hmm. as a professional. Mm -hmm. Just expands my wheelbase, changes my network, gives me a whole new skill set that I didn't have at the time that to me resonated way more, mm-hmm. right? And by the way, I got to do it with people I liked and working mm-hmm. on a product that I believe in, right? So who do you want to be going forward? I assume you've given that a fair amount of thought. I certainly uh, have been intrigued and enticed by building the skill set, having lived in a world where I have acquired a lot of skills around running a company mm-hmm. to be able to then uh, go back to the beginning and learn how to actually start a company and to get a company to the point where it scales and get a company to the point where you actually can begin to inject mm-hmm. those capabilities that I learned in the earlier part of my career into a new company that we've created by the same token, know the dysfunctions of a large enterprise and avoid them as long as you possibly can, right? So at that point, let's go on break because I would love to hear, we know that as we scale companies, we go from I as the the owner do everything because I'm with a very small team to we have to build systems and processes and attend to culture. And that also makes sense as we scale. And with each of those, there are upsides and downsides on the continuum. Absolutely. Happy to talk about that. So we are going to go on break. We will be right back. You are with Greg Moran and Maureen Metcalf. And we'll be joined later by Nicholas Papanicolau. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network the innovative leadership institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization are you ready to innovate and evolve since its inception the innovative leadership institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment we help leaders management teams and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead identify and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. You are with Maureen Metcalf and Greg Moran. And during our break, we were talking about what you self-actualize on. And, and Greg, you were talking specifically about your transition. And then we'll go into more of the business. Yeah, so, you know, for me, it's very important to, to find, I think, a base of authenticity around who you are. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of pressure that fights against that. Whether it's your sense of obligation to your family, whether it's what you see, uh, you know, in the old classic keeping up with the Joneses mm-hmm. mentality mm-hmm. and your, you know, your neighbor bought a new car and wow, I should be able to afford a new mm-hmm. car and I better go for that raise at work. You know, but for me, I suppose I had the gift of being raised. Uh, I was a missionary kid in Africa, originally from Detroit. You know, there were times when my parents were raising a family of four kids, six people with $400 of spendable income a month, and 200 of that was going into gasoline, right? So, wow. you know, I've, uh, for me, I, you know, fairly early in my career reached a point where I was making more than my parents could ever dream of. And, and, and it got to the point where it became, to me, very clear mm-hmm. that everything was icing on the cake mm-hmm. from an economic standpoint. And again, I don't say that because I'm proud mm-hmm. of it particularly. It's just the way the story turned out. Mm-hmm. And then the question becomes, what do you, what do you start focusing on? when you've reached that point and mm-hmm. and i recognize that not everybody has a point at the same you know mm-hmm. same point mm-hmm. along the economic mm-hmm. scale but for me it gave me the freedom to consider alternatives mm-hmm. that otherwise i think i would have not uh, mm-hmm. considered mm-hmm. right and what i would encourage people to consider is where are you on that journey mm-hmm. are you just expanding your lifestyle to consume the means that you have or, uh, you know, could you, have you reached a point of economic freedom where you really don't need that stuff? Mm-hmm. And if you mm-hmm. weren't consuming that stuff, it would give you the freedom to consider alternatives that mm-hmm. otherwise you wouldn't have that might resonate more deeply with the difference you want to mm-hmm. make in the world and the leader you want to become. So to tie it back in, that's the point mm-hmm. I reached as I you know, left nationwide and began this journey mm-hmm. as, uh, you know, executive of a startup mm-hmm. it was no longer purely economically motivated. Uh, you know, do I hope that the economic payoff for this uh, mm-hmm. adventure in starting mm-hmm. a company, you know, keeps me in bread and water? Absolutely. But mm-hmm. way more important to me is the experience I'm having, the mm-hmm. learning I'm getting recognizing that that's what really motivates me now, right? So even Mm -hmm. as people would look at me at a later stage in my career, I'm really motivated to learn and grow. You know, I hit that point probably when I left Accenture. I started my own company. I knew what I didn't want to do. Same traveling full-time, and I had done it for about 12 years with two consulting firms. And I wanted a different quality of life, and I wanted to be able to focus on the stuff that for me was important, So doing things like these radio shows, if I worked for a firm, I probably wouldn't get to do this. And yet every week I get to learn more than I would in a standard billable hour kind of job. But there is definitely the economic trade-off. Maybe. I mean, I think the economic... Yes, that's right. Yeah, you have to be willing to to live with the risk of an economic Mm -hmm. trade-off. But I do think that when we're authentic, when we're really being true to Mm -hmm. ourselves, the odds of us being at our best are way higher. Mm -hmm. And if we're at our best, our ability to perform Mm -hmm. and excel at whatever it is we're choosing to do Mm -hmm. is way higher. And when you excel, there's usually an economic benefit to doing so, right? 
So as we were preparing, you talked about the kind of jobs you had in large companies and then the kind of job you have now. And I want to introduce this at this point because you're talking about authentic and excelling. And there are people who best fit in large organizations that are structured. There are people who best fit in startups and everywhere along the continuum. So would you share a little bit? And this ties to our earlier conversation about uh, risk Mm -hmm. in part. Yeah, so uh, I think the conversation we were having was really around what are the skills, what are the expectations of somebody operating as a senior leader in an enterprise? And and I, I would summarize it loosely beyond getting along with everybody, mm-hmm. which is really important in a big enterprise, mm-hmm. right? And that the politics of a large enterprise and how people relate to each other is a piece of the story and you learn skills around that. But in terms of your, you know, what you're accountable for, mm-hmm. generally speaking, companies that are up and running and successful and have a significant mm-hmm. number of employees, let's say it's a 10,000-person company or whatever, uh, they already have a successful value chain. They already mm-hmm. have scaled up. They already have something that's working per mm-hmm. se. Mm-hmm. And unless they're under extreme pressure like we were when I was at Ford and it wasn't working, generally speaking... Your job is to preserve capital, like minimize mm-hmm. the deployment mm-hmm. of capital. Don't spend money, right? Spend the money you have to, but don't spend any more than you have to and look for ways to save it, right? Number two, right, work as hard as possible to manage risk, whatever mm-hmm. the risk might be, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's compliance risk, regulatory risk, uh, you know, financial risk, operational risk, manage risk as much as you can. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, make sure things don't break. Get the job done every day mm-hmm. and and make sure there's no problems, you know. Mm-hmm. More of a project manager orientation. Yes, absolutely. Pivoting to a startup, what I found is the reverse of all of those things <laughs> is exactly what my job is. So our job is to go acquire capital and deploy it as rapidly as we possibly can in pursuit of an idea that we think the market wants mm-hmm. and that other people are probably pursuing, right? Number two, take as much risk as you possibly can in pursuit of that without taking the company under. And then number three, try things often knowing most of them will fail so that you can iterate to product market fit as rapidly as possible. So that's a tough learning. So when you say most of them will fail, because I know the agile thing is fail fast. And I would say, though, you're really smart. You're doing things that are iterating in the right direction. You're not just throwing the dice around. For sure. And I don't I've never loved that language. Fail Mm -hmm. fast. We never set out to fail. (laughs) Well, but, and that's right. the reason I say that. <laughs> right. You're, you're making well-considered experiments, right. and some will hit, and some will give you learning that you leverage into the next one. Right. And, and to some degree, everything that creates a learning has mm-hmm. some sort of failure tied to it, mm-hmm. and that's really the yeah. point I'm making. But I do think rapid iteration is a way more valuable learning tool than most of mm-hmm. us give it credit for. And it's actually how we learn as humans. Everything. Right, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. As little kids, you fall down and you right. stand up. And right, exactly. And somehow or another, we lose touch with that and think that iteration's bad, and mm-hmm. it's not, right? And you find out, particularly in a startup, that you got to try things, and uh, whether it's uh, trying out your pitch to VCs. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons I think it's so important to go through the process of just pitching as many people as you possibly can on your business plan mm-hmm. Is because you're going to get feedback, whether it's verbal or nonverbal, in every <laughs> one of those meetings. Yeah. And you'll find, like two months later, after 30 pitches, mm-hmm. you're saying it differently. You're emphasizing different points. Mm-hmm. The slides have evolved. And suddenly, that starts to work. People are like, I love this. And you couldn't point to the one thing that you did that made mm-hmm. it different. But the iteration, all those little failures, which are the person looking at you with their eyebrows up or whatever it might be. Well, and I'd say the same for job interviews. When someone wants to go to a job interview and get the job, it's 30 interviews or I don't know what the number is. But it's a lot of them before you really get comfortable with the range of questions. Now, you got two interviews, two offers, but often people aren't in that bucket. Well, that was after 
30 years of getting pretty good at doing what I was doing, right? And and it did take work, but yeah. I'm, I'm living that with my son right now. My son's a senior at Michigan, and he's graduating this spring, and mm-hmm. uh, we're going through that process right now where I've set mm-hmm. him up with, with conversations with a lot of my friends, some mm-hmm. of which aren't interviews, mm-hmm. but I've asked my friends and him to treat them as if they were interviews because I want him to hone that skill mm-hmm. of presenting himself in a way that's authentic to who he is as a leader mm-hmm. and as a young professional, right? So I couldn't agree more. Iteration matters immensely in that context. Mm-hmm. And that also gives us data about where we fit in the world. Absolutely. And data about things that don't resonate with you, right? <laughs> you might find yourself, as I gave the example earlier, going mm-hmm. through a day-long interview and realizing this is not my home. <laughs> well, and the, it seems like the courage and the learning is to say, it's okay that this isn't my home. Just because I got here doesn't mean I have to marry the person. I step away and say that was a bad experience. Not even a bad experience. It's a misaligned experience. That's exactly right. And it doesn't mean we won't find ourselves even inside the context of a company we love, mm-hmm. having chapters of that period of time mm-hmm. that don't resonate entirely. Mm-hmm. Like You might get asked to do a role for a year that's mm-hmm. not your favorite, right? But there's still a way, I think, to approach that that says the larger context still works for me, mm-hmm. and this company's giving me this experience because they're actually investing in me, right? So there's always ways to kind of, I think, interpret what's going on through mm-hmm. a certain lens, right? Well, I think that's a really important point, too. We're not going to love every day, no matter whether it's a business we own and run or business we have a significant stake in or a company or any other facet of our lives. There are things that are brilliant and there are things that are we get through. Absolutely. And kind of interesting, it came up today at work. I had a young colleague ask me over lunch, like, Greg, do you get up early every morning? And I said, generally, yes. And he's like, well, what if you didn't sleep well? And I said, well, I've, I've, I've come to realize Coffee. that... Uh, you know, getting up and being productive in the morning, mm-hmm. and then my attitude mm-hmm. during the day are 90% choice, right? And mm-hmm. if I didn't sleep well, getting up early in the morning and working out is still a better solution than not getting up in the morning <laughs> and working out, right? Mm-hmm. And choosing to be positive about the day, even though last night, you know, the rods mm-hmm. in my back hurt or my knee hurt or whatever it might be, and I didn't sleep that well doesn't have to define how I am that day. I think that's a critical point that we have so much more choice than we believe we do or than anyone ever told us we do. And it starts with how do I want to feel today? What do I want to accomplish? How do I want to feel when I go to bed tonight? I want to feel grateful. I want to feel like I got a lot done. I want to feel like I was a good partner and a good steward of the energy and life I was given. And if I can go through... even part of the day with that sentiment, most of my days are really pretty good. Well, that's the larger theme we've been talking about Mm -hmm. is choice. Yeah. And most of us, to your point, and maybe it's a great way to wrap this up, Mm -hmm. right, don't have a healthy perspective on how much choice we really have available to us um, because Mm -hmm. we've either been told or conditioned, Mm -hmm. right, to think a certain way. And if there's one thing I could encourage people to do, it's find the courage to at least be honest with yourself and use that as a platform for being honest with the choices you're making. And then that ripples through to family, to work, because you made the choice to take the pay cut. I've made choices to change careers as well. And I assumed as I started that I was going to have to take a cut. Wasn't always true. But I went in with that. I'm prepared to do this because this is in my life context what's best for me to make the contribution I want to make in the world. 100%. Craig, thank you. It is such a pleasure, as always, to have you join the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. You're welcome. And we will be joined by Nicholas coming up after the next break. For our listeners during this break, I would like to invite you to think about what is your authentic biggest value. If you were to list the top 10, is there something that rises to number one or two? I realize that's more than a one-minute inquiry, but I encourage you to start during this break.
when it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. From the International Leadership Association Conference. Today, our guest is Nicholas Papa Nicolau. Nicholas is the leader of the worldwide Christian organization Knights of Malta, an ecumenical order. Uh, he has a long experience in business. He was the majority shareholder and chairman and CEO of Austin Martin Lagonda. In the, in the UK, United. the seventh largest shipping fleet owner among the Greeks. Brands included Titan Navigation, and he started his career working for Mr. Onassis shortly after business school. He has also written three books. So let's just talk about your experiences, because you have had very interesting background, and to the extent that we learn from people's journeys, you have a lot to share with us. Thank you. I'm happy to. So. Uh, you had mentioned earlier that uh, you wanted me to say a couple of things about my uh, five years with Mr. Onassis. Yes. And uh, they were uh, extremely interesting. I mean, here was an incredible businessman who owned more than 70 ships, ocean-going ships, owned the national airline of Greece, Olympic Airways, owned Olympic Tower on Fifth Avenue in New York, and a bank in Switzerland and various other interests. So it was an incredible experience to work for him and and with him. As a businessman, he was unequaled. On the family front, he could have been a better family man, but Mm -hmm. unfortunately we find that in cases, you know, similar to his, Mm -hmm. business becomes the total commitment of the person and then they sort of neglect their family, Mm -hmm. uh, which is too bad. Uh, so I stayed with him for five years, and uh, the second year that I was there, he actually promoted me to vice president uh, in the uh, New York uh, organization, mm-hmm. which monitored all of his business activities, but mainly shipping, but also the mm-hmm. Olympic Tower interest and Olympic Airways and so forth. And so he promoted me early and uh, gave me access to himself. Mm-hmm. that uh, were, you know, far exceeded the experiences that I had with him, far mm-hmm. exceeded going to Columbia Business School. You were born in Greece. Mm-hmm. You grew up there. Yes. You went to Columbia. How did you meet Mr. Onassis? Well, actually, I, 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 I was in Greece till I was 16, and then I, I was sent to boarding school in Massachusetts by my parents. Mm-hmm. And then I went on from there to Harvard, Mm-hmm. and uh, uh, got a degree in economics. I graduated with what they used to call advanced placement, so I graduated in three years. I did the same thing, but not from Harvard. Oh, really? Good for you. From where? James Madison, also in economics. Oh, good for you. 
And then I went to Columbia Business mm -hmm. School, and after that I went to work for Mr. Onassis. And the reason I went to work for him is because my parents were very good friends of his, and uh, mm -hmm. I had an interest in going to work in shipping. And so mm -hmm. my father arranged it, and then I went over there and I was hired immediately. And uh, then on his next visit to New York, Mr. Onassis actually asked to see me and mm -hmm. uh, because I guess he wanted to sort of get my measure or whatever. Mm -hmm. And after that, uh, things developed uh, magnificently. Uh, and uh, as I say, it was a great experience. So what was your biggest learning during that first five years? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Presence of mind, I would say, and uh, negotiating. Whenever he um, would ask uh, for particularly, uh, you know, hard terms on somebody mm -hmm. that was trying to do business with him, he would always say afterwards, well, half the shame is mine and half the shame is theirs because certainly if they were in a position to ask of some, something more from me, they would do it. So mm -hmm. that's the world of business. It's you negotiate for the best deal that you can get. But he was also very much a man of his word so that um, he would negotiate hard, but once he agreed, he performed. Okay. So we would call that integrity. Yes. And that's why the fleet had an excellent, his fleet had an excellent reputation. And its roster of, you know, customers included the biggest names in the oil world, you know, mm -hmm. Exxon Mobil, Standard Oil of California, you know, Amoco, I mean, you name it, mm -hmm. because he had an excellent mm -hmm. reputation. So where did you go from there? Well, I worked for him for five years, and then I went out on my own with my brother, mm -hmm. the two of us in partnership, and we bought our first ship, which was a tanker, a 60,000-ton tanker. And from then we went on to buying a whole slew of ships all the way up to 260,000-ton tankers, and also very large uh, dry cargo ships that move iron ore and coal and grain mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. forth. And so uh, we did that together over the ensuing years. And so why did you leave there to go to Aston Martin? No, I didn't leave there. I actually, I had bought an Aston Martin, my first Aston Martin car <laughs> in 1977, I think. Okay. And I loved it. Mm -hmm. And I be, started to become interested in the company. And uh, at the time they had their uh, dealership and U.S. distributorship based in New Rochelle in New York. Mm -hmm. So I would go up there and I would uh, talk with their management and eventually that led to my uh, buying a small share of that operation, mm -hmm. the U.S. distributorship, initially 10%. Then I bought 100% of it and 10% of the factory. And then mm -hmm. we bought another 45% of the factory, at which point we were the 55% shareholder of the factory in England, mm -hmm. at which point I went in as uh, CEO and chairman, and it was a very difficult time because um, the factory had actually sh just shut down when we acquired control, mm -hmm. and the labor force had walked off, and uh, they'd had some substantial losses over the previous 12 months, so they'd shut it down. Mm -hmm. And we were very fortunate to turn it around in a very short period of time. So you say we, was this you and your brother? Well, my brother took a, a, a smaller part in it, but uh, I, I led on that deal, mm -hmm. and we had a junior partner whose name is uh, Peter Livanos from another Greek uh, shipping family. Mm -hmm. So, which Aston Martin did you own? Oh, <laughs> oh I, I, I owned a, a few. A few? Yes, including some, some of the older, you know, more spectacular models, and then, you know, the best of our current uh, production mm -hmm. at the time. So. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't, I've forgotten now, but I must have owned about eight or nine of them. Did you own the same one that James Bond drove? No, that uh, we only had uh, made two, actually, okay. the factory. The one he drove and the one he wrecked? Or? No, uh, I know that one survived because it mm -hmm. belonged to a German uh, collector whom I actually met at one of our shows in Europe somewhere. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, I was just, uh, he, he expressed an interest to our people to meet me, and so, I, you know, it was a public mm -hmm. relations exercise, and I, uh, I spoke with him, and uh, he confirmed to me that he owned one of those original, the two original DB5s that had the ejection seat and all the mm -hmm. other stuff. And then just in making conversation with him, I said, well, uh, do you enjoy driving it? 
and this was a very Germanic uh, gentleman, <laughs> and he said, nine, nine. He said, I, I do not drive it. And so I said, oh, uh, so then surely you have it in an air-conditioned garage and you just go and admire it. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, no, I have it in my living room. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I realize that's the, not the topic of the conversation, but yes. that's curious. Yeah. So running a shipping Company. enterprise, yeah. tell me about that. Well, that's a, you know, it's a tough business, but it's... Uh, you know, we look around and we see big trucks on the highway or mm -hmm. we see railroads mm -hmm. go by and we say, oh my God, you know, look at that, how big it is. Mm -hmm. Well, just to give you an analogy, the biggest freight train, which is called a unit train in America, will have, can have a hundred wagons and each wagon carries uh, 120 tons at the most. That's 12,000 tons of freight moving on that mm -hmm. enormous train. Well, 12,000 tons in shipping is a laughable quantity because the ships today are 250 to even 400,000 tons. So it gives you some idea of where the bulk of world trade moves. Mm -hmm. It moves on the sea, not by air and not by rail, on the mm -hmm. sea. Uh, all the raw materials that come, you know, from crude oil to grain to iron ore to coal mm -hmm. to all kinds of minerals, bauxite, mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of minerals the vast majority of that moves uh, uh, by sea. And, and finished goods as well. And, and finished, finished goods, goods in container ships, mm -hmm. yes, which is another branch of the shipping business. So, you know, shipping, you have to be very international because the ship is going from one country to another and mm -hmm. uh, usually across the globe. And uh, so you've got to be very keenly aware of what's happening in various countries. Mm -hmm. Are there war risks involved? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, piracy risks, all these sorts mm -hmm. of things. And uh, it's also very uh, tied in a way to commodity prices uh, because if people, you know, the, the companies that deal in commodities, you know, such as Cargill or, or mm -hmm. you know, the big oil companies or the big sugar companies think that uh, four months from now or six months from now the price is going to go up, they will try to actually buy all the raw material they can mm -hmm. now and mm -hmm. move it into storage or whatever so that they have it ready to hit the market when the market goes up as they anticipate. So that creates fl uh, you know, flurries of activity in the, uh, in the shipping market. So it's a, it's a very sophisticated business. So I think of right now we're facing tariffs and currency fluctuations. Yes. So I, w I would buy in advance of tariffs and currency You would buy, issues. you know, if you think that, uh, you know, the next winter, this winter is going to be very harsh, you would have been buying already crude oil. Yeah, yeah. And storing it, you know, in tank mm -hmm. farms so that you have it ready. Mm -hmm. So, uh, or if you feel that the grain prices are going to go sky high because the crop in one of the key producing countries was destroyed mm -hmm. for some reason, mm -hmm. which is what happened, by the way, with Chernobyl in uh, the old Soviet Union in the mm -hmm. Ukraine. The nuclear explosion that took place oh, there yeah, completely course. contaminated. Uh, their the crops, and so there was, uh, you know, uh, then, you know, that shortage had to be made up by buying more from the Western world. What leadership qualities made you good at running a shipping enterprise, and I'm assuming also helped you with the turnaround of Aston Martin? The answer is always several, but, uh, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I've traveled a long road in my life. Mm -hmm as a businessman and I've had many uh, successes and I've had some spectacular failures also. Thank uh, you for admitting that because people, our listeners, especially our young ones, right. need to recognize that the path to success doesn't look It's not a one faults. way. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely not. And you had better be able to be resilient enough and mm -hmm. humble enough also to learn lessons uh, from your failures so that hopefully you don't repeat them in the future. Mm -hmm. But. W what I've, the conclusion that I've come, and I, I repeat, all of us are on a road and we acquire mm -hmm. experiences in life. You do, I do. Mm -hmm. uh, and the more time goes by, the more experiences and the, the, we acquire and the more lessons we learn. So if you ask me from my vantage point now, I, I would say that the number one quality would be to be able to follow biblical principles, to be decent to people, to be honest, uh, mm -hmm. to treat people correctly 
everybody that you deal with, from the people that work for you to the people that you deal with in your business, whether they're your client or your suppliers or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I think that definitely I always want to be on the side of doing things in a biblically correct way. Okay. If I were to ask you 20 years ago, what would you have said? Probably, you know, something a little more macho. <laughs> and it would have been wrong. <laughs> so, so I want to unpack a little bit. We talk about traits of leaders going forward, and there is humility and tenacity. There is collaboration. There's the ability to step back and take a larger view. Mm -hmm. There's self-awareness and the ability to, to build resilience in myself and the system. And I think of the, the juxtaposition of being as profitable as possible at a point in time leaves me less bandwidth to absorb difficulty. So, so there's a... Yes, not only that, it also leaves you less bandwidth to do things correctly. Mm -hmm. If you've noticed in the whole debate nowadays in the United States about illegal immigration, mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is that some major corporations are in support of it because they want the cheap labor. And uh, there is a moral question that attaches to that. Mm -hmm. So you're looking to basically exploit these people that are coming in because mm -hmm. they're desperate from their own countries. And at the same time, you're denying a better wage to your own compatriots. And uh, how do you ethically reconcile that? Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, with a lot of the business management of companies today, there is uh, no or very little consideration given to, to ethical uh, mm -hmm. factors. Uh, that that, that well, certainly doesn't affect all companies because there are a right, number of right. companies who really have a correct attitude towards mm -hmm. their employees and etc. Et but uh, I think that you know, having now reached the uh, the age of sixty nine, I can see that there are managements of companies, including some very big companies, who do not necessarily do things in an ethical way mm -hmm. uh, or uh, skirt the laws of the nation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or nations where they operate. And I'm not entirely comfortable with that. And I'm sure, again, it was a number of factors caused you to shift from macho wins to a more Christian-based or ethics-based approach mm -hmm. to leadership. It's the spiritual journey that I've been okay. on in my life. And every, every one of us has a different path, I think. Mm -hmm. But uh, we all have a path. Mm -hmm. You know, the thoughts that we think today, uh, let's say at the age of 50 or 60, are not necessarily the same thoughts that we were thinking or the same attitudes that we had mm -hmm. when we were 20 and 30. We, we hope that's true. We're all on a journey. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, to me, this is where my journey took me. And I want to come back to one question that you asked before that I didn't fully answer. So I didn't leave the shipping world to buy Aston Martin. I oh, bought Aston okay. Martin as a, you know, a subsidiary interest. Oh, interesting. If, if you okay. see what I mean. So did you ever exit the shipping business or are you still running that? No, I exited uh, more than 10 years ago. Uh, finally, because as I say, it's a tough business, and uh, mm -hmm. I, I figured it's time to, you know, when you get phone calls at all hours of the day, because, mm -hmm. you know, your ships are all over the place, and uh, you almost get to the point where you, you know, you hear the, the, your phone ring and you're nervous, and you're thinking, oh my God, you know, what, what is this about now? You get to a certain point in life where you say, well, you know, I don't really need this, I've had mm -hmm. my excitement. And so I exited, as I say, more than 10 years ago. Yeah, I'm thinking, as you mentioned, things like piracy. Hmm. These are serious issues. Of course. That impact the lives of... Your people? You know, yeah, the entire work for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it seems like some of that is on the rise. Definitely. Uh, you know, in that uh, body of water, you know, the Indian Ocean... Uh, that goes, uh, you know, by between Somalia and India, mm -hmm. uh, and also on the other side, on the uh, eastern side of India, that goes up through the Sulu Sea and so forth. There are increased mm -hmm. uh, uh, incidents of uh, piracy. You remember the movie uh, Captain Phillips that that came out mm -hmm. about uh, with uh, what was his name? Um, 
that actor. It wasn't Tom, Tom Hanks, Hanks, was it? Yeah. Tom Hanks. So, you know, that was, mm-hmm. you know, a true story. Oh, I don't think I realized it was a true story. Oh, okay. yes, absolutely. And he was lucky because it was an American ship and uh, American citizens who were taken hostage mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. these guys. So SEAL Team 6 was dispatched mm-hmm. and dispatched them, okay. the pirates. But that's not true of every, uh, you know, other ship in the world. So other nations don't have the same capabilities that we do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what is most interesting to you now? The transformation that is taking place in America. Okay. Because I think it is both a secular transformation and I Mm -hmm. think it's also a spiritual uh, transformation. Uh, I'm happy that we are getting away from the mentality that uh, everybody is a victim. Uh, no matter what they've done, no matter what conscious decisions they made, uh, I'm glad that we're getting away to a period now of accountability. What's next? Very interesting question. Uh, I realize it's a longer than a minute, but... <laughs> the shortest answer I can give you is that it really doesn't depend on me, it depends on, on the Lord, because so many doors as, in my life, as I look back on my mm-hmm. life, have been opened to me uh, by Him the whole Aston Martin chapter, the chapter where I co-founded the NGO called the World uh, Public Forum Dialogue of Civilizations Hmm. with a very prominent Russian and a very prominent Indian gentleman and you know we've it's been going strong now for 16 years every year we have a conference on the island of Rhodes that's four to six days long with about 600 VIP guests from all over the world, presidents of countries you know, prime ministers, ministers of the government, religious leaders, mm-hmm. academic leaders, and so forth. So that was another chapter in my life. Uh, I was a polo player. We, I played for 15, 16 years. We did very well. We won some championships. That was another chapter in my life. But as I look back at my life and I think, did I deserve that? Did I deserve? Did I really, you know, create this? I always feel that I have to give credit to the Lord because He was the one opening the doors. So I don't know what other doors he's going to open Mm -hmm. for the rest of my life. We'll see. I'm excited. So if we talk to you in 10 years, we'll get to see the the unfolding of your story. Nicholas, thank you. This has been delightful to get to learn more of your story. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.